We're back on an episode of CNET Book Club talking about books and authors. And today we have Tim Mon, whose book Infinite Detail hit earlier this year. And it is science fiction, but it is very much of the moment uh, on a number of levels. And um, Tim is also a journalist, having written about technology for a number of publications uh, and has been very aware of issues with with data and privacy and smart cities. And, and so we're here to talk today about Infinite Detail, which you should really read. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, I read it and I loved it. And I read a lot of um, science fiction along these lines, but also I have been working in tech for a number of years. And uh, the issues it brings up are both uh, pre- and post-apocalyptic and yet not entirely apocalyptic in the, in the spirit of a there's a there's a dark side, but there's also a, ho- a hopeful side. Um, what what brought you to write about what Infinite Detail is about, which is about kind of like the collapse and rebuilding of of smart cities, I guess. Yeah, it's, yeah. The, the original idea was I had around about sort of 2013, um, kind of in the aftermath of the the Snowden revelations, and there was mm-hmm. that that kind of. Um, there was that time where Anonymous were in, in like seemed to be fighting a war against various corporations over you know they were, they were fighting against PayPal and people who were, were not taking donations for WikiLeaks and various things like that. And there was a time, if you remember, if people remember, you could wake up in the morning and like Google wouldn't be working or Facebook would be down or various various like PayPal would be down and right. or associated networks would be would be just temporarily out just for two or three, few three hours at the most or something. But there was a lot of outages. And it felt um, very much at the time like perhaps this isn't a permanent structure, this thing that we're assuming, the internet is a permanent service right. that we can always like rely on. Perhaps it's not a permanent structure. So I started writing the book then, or, or started having the first ideas for the book, and people were saying to me, I, what are you doing? I said, I'm writing novels, what's it about? And I said, it's about destroying the internet. And people would say, well, why? Why would we want to do that? And now when I ask people, people ask me, what's your novel about? And I say, it's about destroying the internet. They're like, good, right on, right? <laughs> so it, a lot has right. changed in those, those sort of five or six years since I started writing it. Yeah. Um, and, and it's become like weirdly prescient along the way in some ways. Uh, it definitely has. And if, if so to, to catch up a bit, because you assuming you have not read it, you may have, uh, the book um, takes place in, in, the, in, the, in the past, which is the future, but also... The, the present, which is further in the future, uh, mainly between Bristol uh, in the UK and New York City. Uh, and it is uh, basically about the creation of this self-contained uh, community called the Croft, which is a smart city apart from the smart city um, that's peer built. And, um, but it's also about the collapse of the internet and the survival beyond that, I don't want to give away anything. More no, than that. no, yeah, but yeah, it's that's like, that's basically yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But it, but it deals with those elements. Um, I I thought was really interesting, and I uh, well, there are a lot of things, but I think that the the question I had about the community of the Croft, I started thinking about things which have been coming up more now, like uh, art art collectives like Meow Wolf in in Santa Fe, and I was thinking about groups that are building these immersive communities, uh, and and. The Croft is very much this group of artists that are trying to build a community uh, that's not being co-opted. And 
So did, did that, obviously that came from before uh, Meow Wolf, but um, what was inspiring you uh, when, when you were working on that? Was the stuff in Bristol or was there stuff elsewhere? So the Croft is a real place in Bristol. It's a, it's a, it's a street rather than a neighborhood, but it's, it's referred to as a neighborhood. It's kind of, it's Stokescroft and it's kind of like the Williamsburg of, of Bristol in some ways. And that it started as a, it's in a traditionally uh, like working class and, and like, non-white neighborhood but this mm -hmm. one part that's become incredibly gentrified and then very hipster um and it's but it's got this kind of anarchic edge where it likes to feel like it's apart from the city so that kind of gave me that it was a very obvious place to set this but um there was a lot of projects going on at the time in various places that i was aware of a lots of mesh networking stuff if you you know which is for mm -hmm. those that don't know what mesh networking is, in very very simple terms it's a decentralized networking system um where it's a peer-to-peer -peer system where um, you connect. Instead of connecting to a central server, you connect to other members of the network. It's kind of an ad hoc, friend together kind of system. And at the time, actually, one of the things um, which you don't hear too much about now were the umbrella protests in Hong Kong, hmm. which were uh, pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong against, against the Chinese government. And they were using a mesh smartphone app to organize, which was fascinating, which was literally uh, it, it creates an ad hoc, ad hoc network where you can only connect to someone if you're within, like, say, 50 feet of them. But through that, you're able to organize one way. And it's, it's, yeah. it's a way of organizing that is, um, is, isn't, is harder for, for state services or, or corporations to kind of survey uh, and sort of eavesdrop on um, as a result. Um, there was that, and then there were some projects in New York, because not long after I'd started writing a book, I moved, I moved here, mm -hmm. and um, there was a, a project over on Governor's Island that iBeam did, a friend of mine, right. Ingrid Burrington, journalist and artist, um, she'd set, she set up a mesh network over on Governor's Island. It's quite interesting, because Governor's Island hasn't really got any kind of cell phone reception, or it's very, at the time anyway, it, it wasn't very good, so this was the only network you could connect to, so that kind of clicked in place, like as... When I went and saw that, it was a, it was a very obvious kind of uh, of way of pushing that that side of the story forward, and it was just the idea that, that there was these artist projects. Mainly, I, I saw Stokescroft really. Uh, it's a political um, in the book. There's a political project, but also an art project. Uh, a, a way of envisioning the people who have built it. A, a way of envisioning a different way of doing networking, where we're not reliant on central infrastructure and we're not reliant on large corporations and thus we're not you know tied into this whole kind of surveillance capitalism uh, uh, data harvesting kind of kind yeah. of thing well and throughout all of this uh you know a, a huge character in this book is the technology of, of these specs which are right. you know kind of the augmented reality uh future spectacles it's also another thing i want to bring is how interesting how you uh flow so many brand names throughout the book which is common in cyberpunk but you do it in a really interesting way like it's very of the moment and casually brought up but brings up issues of data with many companies right, right. yeah so there's like samsung apple there's uh google they're 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 all over uh but the specs are everyone's wearing them and then later on and then the community's uh crafting their own software their own os uh that is basically away from the system, but then gets rebooted up. Um, but the specs, it, it made me think about the, I, I cover a lot of AR and I cover I know you do. Wearable. I follow your Twitter yeah, for yeah. exactly <laughs> this reason. Yeah. So the stuff, and I think about wearable tech and, 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 and it's about big data. Um, 
and and I guess my question is where you know how how feasible is it to leave the big data because I think these companies are so uh, are making everything that they're building off of, including the grid that will make AR, is like connected to that. Exactly, and that's the, I think that's the big the, in terms of technology and democracy and and. I don't want to sound like I'm exaggerating because I really don't think I am. Like yeah. human rights issues, that's something we really need to be dealing with. And I think that's kind of something that's been obvious with even just today, you know, more Facebook revelations about and stuff right. like this. And, and um, we have been sold the model that the kind of apps that we want to use, especially like digital assistant apps, you know, Siri and, and Alexa, um, uh, well, our social media apps, they all have to be centralized and this technology can only be run in the cloud. You know, this, you know, Apple were very good at convincing us. And they were probably right at the time that when Siri launched, it needed to be run in the cloud because it needed more processing power. Hmm. And it needed to farm everybody's interactions in order to work out how to do stuff, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's the case anymore. I'm not a technology expert from what, you know, on, on a, I'm not kind of like a handset expert, but I'm pretty sure the iPhone 10 could run Siri locally. Right. And, and and I'm pretty sure Amazon could manufacture an Echo that runs Alexa locally, uh, or anybody could. Right? It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be one of these corporations. We could have open source alternatives to this stuff. Um, so that not everything we're doing isn't being funneled through through these data mining services, and our behaviour and our our actions aren't being harvested for for, for corporate data. It's, it's I talk about this stuff online a lot and I get a lot of kickback from people who say the very obvious thing whenever you talk about surveillance, which is if you're not doing anything wrong, what have you got to hide? And it's not that we've got, at the moment, I feel like we've all have everything to hide mm -hmm. in a sense, because it's not, they're not worried about us doing something right or wrong, which was very clear with the very disturbing Amazon revelations last week, where you, know, you hear that um, Amazon workers are, List apparently overhearing sexual assaults but aren't reporting them, right? It's not that they, they're not worried about what we're doing right or wrong. They're just worried about what we're doing. They're interested in tracking our behavior in order to build systems and market stuff to us and make decisions that we don't have a have agency in how, in, in how those decisions are made. Um, and I, I really think that this is the it's not the biggest issue facing us at the moment. Climate change is the biggest issue facing us at the moment. But one of the biggest issues facing Western societies at the moment is, is really like, how do we counter this complete farming of our behavior to create data for other people? I thought that was really beautifully done in the book where that question of, like, you bring up, it's like, well, what have you got to hide? But the community in in Stokescroft, it is like they really keep that spirit going of, of – um, of, the, the need to have that that freedom and it's not about hiding stuff it's just about building uh, a, a sense of of control and, and 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 again i guess i'm keep saying community but it's it's about knowing each other working with each other and it reminded me of the sort of stuff that you know we had Corey dr o on last year and there's a a, a common thread there in terms of an, a, an activism but i thought it was interesting is your book also um bridges i i think both sides of a of a there's a there's very much a darkness and there's a hopefulness to it and I think that's great because it's we're not really I, I leave not entirely sure right which is the right feeling of like what well how does it resolve it's I'm, kind it's, of, I'm, you're not the first person to say that and everybody time someone says that I'm very happy because that was the point of the book yeah um, especially towards the end of the book again I don't want to get into spoilers territory but I, <laughs> I kind of you know I 
I, I, I have a reputation for being like a depressing writer, <laughs> like <laughs> for writing kind of like, you know, kind of kind of dismal stuff about this. And and I don't shy away from how pessimistic I can be about this stuff. But I get labelled a dystopian writer a lot, and I'll own the label even though I'm not particularly keen on it. But I think the, the thing that people miss about dystopian stories, any good dystopian story, it's always about people pushing back about against that dystopia. It's always, whether they succeed or not, it's always about some like glimmer of hope, someone trying to find a different way, someone yeah. trying to point out the failings of the system at, at the very least. And um, I, I really wanted this book to be about that and to leave you with questions. I don't write to answer questions for people. I, I, mm -hmm. I write to ask questions and hopefully make people go away thinking about stuff. Well, uh, the thing that had me asking a lot of questions when I was reading it was what – what's the legacy of all of the data, you know? And I think that that's, it, there's a wonderful like ghost world that's in the book. And I think that's, you know, not a spoiler, so that shows up early on and is sort of this, this feeling of, um, I've thought about it a lot of like the siloed off information that these companies collect, that you have these maybe crumbling archives and things that might uh, semi-collapse, so you're like not fully gone, but you could sort of maybe sometimes access them. And there's a sense of that in this world because the group that leaves to do their own thing, that's great, but then there might still be stuff out there. So I, I think the question is, you know, how much goes away? How right. much can be gotten back? Is, is stuff going to be it's a, it's really a, gone? It's a term that I think was being used in the EU. Yeah, I'll bring up about the archiving and, and sort of lost. I believe that's where. There's well, somewhere like that, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank, Thank Richard, you, I sure. owe you a drink. It's okay. really embarrassing because I'm savvy in other things and I just had never bothered to learn, even though we do a podcast. I'm going to spend like four days just <laughs> making sure I'm autonomous yeah. with this. <laughs> Thank you. It's embarrassing. Like I said to you earlier, it's just buttons. I know, exactly. <laughs> it's not bad. I've stigmatized the whole thing. Like I look at a lot of more advanced stuff, but I get, yeah, thanks. Um, so sorry about that. So I think we're like 15 minutes in. We'll keep rolling. Um so I think what's really interesting is this ghost world of, of stuff where you have data that's been collected and it's out there, but it's kind of half collapsed and yet it's still somewhat accessible. And it brings the question up that I have been wondering, which is when you have all these silos of data, these Facebooks and Twitters or Fitbits or what, you know, all the stuff that's going to keep collecting and it, maybe you're no longer subscribed or it goes away. Like what, Will it fully go away? Will it be gone? Will, what will you salvage? What are these pieces of yourself? So uh, I was curious, you know, your thoughts, even as the uh, over the course of the past five years or six years. There's a, I think it was the EU used a phrase or, or, or maybe the EFF or someone, but I think it was a phrase they used in the European Union when they were having like legal um, battles with Google and people about the right to be forgotten, a phrase to that, that you, you hmm. should have the right as an individual to have your data deleted, to have full control over what's kept and what isn't. And of course, we're in a situation now where we just, we don't understand what's happening to our data. And I'm very much of the belief, especially if you listen to Zuckerberg and people talking, that they don't understand what's happening to your data. It's very clear. And this is a, film, a theme in the book, which is really like a, it's like a central theme of a lot of my work, both fiction and non-fiction, is that we are dealing now with systems and networks that are incredibly complex, that, that it's impossible, it's beyond impossible for one individual to comprehend them. Hmm. And increasingly, it's becoming impossible for, for human intelligence to comprehend them. 
um, for the people that built them to comp comprehend them. And it's very clear when you when you hear Zuckerberg speak that he doesn't he, he he's basically admitting and 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 Jack from Twitter that they don't understand how their networks work anymore because they've just right. scaled up to a size that that uh, beyond their comprehension, beyond they ever thought they would achieve, and beyond everybody that's using them. Thing. And this, I think, is a very genuine problem that has all kinds of implications for everything, from our personal data and our privacy, right through to human rights violations, right through to who wins elections, right through to... It creates a, a an environment, I, I really believe, where... Um, this is such a big topic. I have to be careful if I don't go down <laughs> a dozen rabbit holes with this, right? I know. But it's not just the complexity of digital networks. It's complexity of things like supply chains. It's the complexity of how the economy works and how these things are all tied into each other. Um, they, we, we've got the situation where politicians don't necessarily have a lot of control over things. So when they promise to change something, they can't. And that has a knock-on effect that people distrust politicians. Hmm. Uh, and then it's very easy for somebody like Trump to come in or for Brexit to happen and things like this where it's easier to scapegoat people uh, than it is to, to actually make social change. And you, you promise change through authoritarian, like uh, illiberal ways rather than through, you know, actually making changes to society. So I think this all ties in. Sorry, I've gone a little bit off, off yeah. topic. But the, the whole thing no, is like our data is part of that and it's being constantly resold and repackaged, and we don't know who's reselling it. The people reselling it don't know who it's going to. It's been used to create data sets that have been used, then used to train algorithms and AI and machine learning programs and stuff like that to do things that we don't intend it to do. You know, I don't intend my data to be processed and used in predictive policing. I don't want that to happen. I don't want my, my data to be used in you know, other, other algorithms. I don't want my data to be harvested by a hedge fund and used to make terrible investments that may, you know, have, end up with people being thrown out of their homes or something like that. And, and it's almost like, it's become like almost like a, a tax issue. You know, we're paying our taxes, but we don't want our taxes to be used for certain things. But again, that's a dangerous metaphor, which I don't like. The metaphor that's being used a lot, and someone used it in, I think it was either the FT or Wall Street Journal last hmm. week, of, of data is the new gold. And I think that's a really dangerous, dangerous... We don't want to use that. We don't want to normalise that phrase because it's not... Data is not a natural resource that's dug out the ground. It's made from people. A friend of ours, um, Karen Gregory, is a sociologist. She came up with a phrase a few years ago, data is like um, soil and green. It's made from people. And I think that's a really good thing, thing to remember. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not a resource that we dig out the ground. It's, it's us. We, we are data. It's a very humane thing, and we should have some control about how it's used and how it isn't used. And, and yeah. also, look at, how we've, look at what we've done to the world and, and huge populations of, of potentially billions for exploiting oil, you know, yeah. let alone what we've done to the environment, but the countries that we've destroyed, and the, the colonialism that's happened over, right. over like, this chase this chasing for this commodity. Let's not do the same thing over data. Well, and it's sort of like inextricably linked, like you mentioned, that it's us and that it, I think what's interesting, the more I, I absorb uh, the nature of AI is that it continues to be us. Like it's the, like that it's not an, uh, a byproduct, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it continually requires our data. Oh, we're, and, we're literally teaching it to replicate ourselves. So the yeah. idea that, you know, I mean, the Amazon recruitment um, algorithm, the, the, if you know that story, it's the perfect example of this. Mm -hmm. the, uh, 
Amazon were getting so many resumes that they wanted an algorithm that would sift through them. At the same time, they told the people developing it, you know, it needs to. Rec- we need to recruit more women. We're recru- recruiting far too many men. Um, so they went away and they generated this algorithm. They ran it. It sifted through these these resumes. They all came back. They were mainly men, and they said to them, "Well, why is it still coming back to men?" Well, well, we taught the algorithm to select select resumes by feeding it all the resumes of people we've already hired, right? So in effect, they taught the algorithm to be sexist. There's a way that it's... It, they do things it, as they've been done. As they've been done. And this is... Wow. And it's, it's yeah. tragic and slightly amusing and, and upsetting with that example, but that's what, how predictive policing works, right? So right. we're being sold pred- predictive policing as well. It's not humans, it's not biased, it can't be racist, but we're feeding it data from existing police services we're feeding the data from existing court cases from the criminal justice system so it's picking up those same inherent inherent biases that we know exist well it feels like in the past year at least um it's hard for me to tell but it seems like this is a, a moment of really great change in everyday people being more aware of these things uh versus you know that there were science fiction writers there have been tech writers there have been activists but i think it's hit uh, and where technology to cover technology is not a um, a side area; it's literally the current event. Um, and now your book arrives in the midst of that, where I think we're you know Facebook and what that means to people, or or what it means to have uh, you know issues with policing or elections. Like people are, seem to be aware of these problems, or Amazon, um, and are angered or or want to know what to do. I really hope so. I yeah. really hope so. The pessimist and the cynic in me is not so sure because I think like the bubbles I'm in and the bubbles you're in and yeah, hard, that we're yeah. in and you know the echo chambers kind of for want of a better phrase that we're in on social media and the papers we read. I think we're aware of it. I'm not sure how much in quotes the general public is necessarily mm-hmm. or what the general public even means anymore in, in kind of these areas of like very divided you know communities and social media platforms. Um, I mean, one example is the Snowden revelations, which was shocking at the time. But, you know, like, what is it, like six years later, people barely know who he is. Or if you ask people in the street, there was, a, and people were asking uh, about, there were, were people asking the public about Snowden last year, I believe. And they were like, oh, wasn't he that traitor? You know, and then, you know, people don't have a, you know, don't remember that. Also, at the same time, we're, we're very much, despite the global nature of social media and news networks, we're very much, localized to a Western perspective a lot of the time. You know, while their stories are people are leaving Facebook in America, they're literally having like millions of people in India and and other, you know, so-called developing nations like like subscribing en masse. So um yeah, I want that to be true, Scott. I really yeah. do. And it's part of the reason I wrote the book, because hopefully it'll get into you know, if it gets into like three people's hands who haven't thought about this stuff before, mm-hmm. then I've got outside of my bubble. Um, and I do, I do hopefully, you know, there's, I think it's something that's important for fiction and for popular culture to do, is to kind of push, push these things and make them, make them more visible, hopefully. Well, hopefully, yeah. And, and then thinking of like bubbles, it, it occurs to me that what's interesting about the book is that it takes on these big topics and it's about global things, but it is a hyper local book. So like really it's only taking place in, in Bristol and New York city for the, I think the entire, well, in the, con- and a container ship. So and a container, yeah, exactly. yeah, that's a big spoiler, but yeah. There's, <laughs> Sorry, there's no, a no, container no, ship. You're fine. <laughs> this, is, this is a podcast. Let me say at the beginning, you should hopefully have read the book when you, when you tune into this, but, um, but yes, and a container ship. 
Yeah, it's and that was very much a conscious decision because I wanted to talk about if the internet suddenly disappeared, we would we were so used to being plugged in globally. I mean, we would go instantly back to a hyperlocal situation. So there's there's conversations in the book that I hopefully suggest that in, in Bristol, it's not that people don't know what's happening in America, they don't know what's happening in London, they don't even know what maybe is happening two neighbourhoods away. Right. right. And, right. And, but other systems come about and are resurrected, so one of the characters in the book runs a pirate radio station. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a return to certain analogue technologies and communication technologies. Stuff. And, you know, there's... When you write a book like this, you have to, I have to really limit what my scope is and stuff. And I had this whole idea at one point there was going to be this whole ham ham radio network, right? A global ham radio network where people are exchanging information and stuff. Yeah, like absolutely. That, which is something that would, would, I think would emerge in this, in this scenario. But it was just, that was another character and another set of chapters that I just wasn't going to have the time or the sanity to write, you know, so... I kind of, I kind of let that get that, that one pull aside. But that, yeah. that world is fascinating. I think it was in San Francisco and I happened to climb up um, in the hills by the Golden Gate Bridge and found like one of the, one of the groups there. And we were talking about how they were communicating with other nodes. And um, it, I, I don't, my grandfather used to do ham radio. I have, have been, and I see stuff around like Montclair and around New Jersey. Right. Uh, it, it is a fascinating group of like, again, I think about, what you're writing about or Cory Doctor, I think people are like have built their own sufficient network and know how to work in or communicating to peers. But it is, yeah, that's an amazing world. I started thinking about that as I was reading the book and wondering like if that was going to interconnect. Uh, I, I go back to, this is like a totally separate part of the book, but an early part that really grabbed me living in New York, because uh, I haven't talked about the New York part yet, but right. New York is really... Um, <clears throat> It's a really dark vision of a glossy New York that I feel like has happened uh, that is in- increasingly frictionless. And you, you bring it up as kind of like the the ultimate um, success of this kind of um, brutal big data um, smoothed over world. And there's the like homeless community that's um, suddenly realizing one day that they can't recycle the cans because they've already been turned into uh, check-in uh systems for these smart trash cans that they don't realize and they, nobody understands and the store can't explain it to them. And I thought that was heartbreaking and fascinating and made me think about stores now turning to, there, there are a lot of cash-free shops. Exactly. and Well, Amazon and, Go is yeah, yeah, like yeah. A, a thing. I, we lived, um, when we lived in uh, New York, my wife and I, we lived down in East Flatbush and there was a, a, a shortage of, of good grocery stores down there. But it was very the, the neighborhood is very rapidly gentrifying mm-hmm. and and it struck me i'd already finished this book uh, by this point and the amazon go thing started it's like well i could see amazon go setting you know after they bought whole foods opening a store here and it would be literally a store that was only accessible to people who have amazon prime accounts right and most people in my neighborhood didn't don't have an amazon prime account in I, at right. the time i would imagine or would necessarily want one or be able to to get one right um, and, and that stuff is, is really terrifying to me. That, that whole idea of the digital divide that we've talked about um, for like decades now, um, what smart cities do potentially is take that div- digital divide and turn it into yet another physical divide. Hmm. Right? So if you don't have access to networks, you don't have access to services and platforms, um, you, you know, you're you're the other side of it. You don't have access to, to physically parts of the city. And it's, 
you know, coming back to New York and moaning about, about the subway not working, but then coming out the subway and seeing people in the financial district and stuff jumping in Ubers all the time. You're like, okay, so this is, you know, this there's like this, these two two transit systems, one that's digital and, and private and one that's public and the public one's struggling and the people who whose money is needed to keep it running are not using it. They're using, they're using you know, like Uber or Lyft or, or whatever. Um, or um, maybe in the future, drive, as a kind of driverless car networks or something like that, you know, autonomous car networks, if, if that is something that happens in cities. And again, it's not going to be something that's accessible to everybody. Yeah. Um, so these are real, very real issues. I've only been back a few days. Um, it's the first time I'm back in New York for about a year. I have not been to Hudson Yards yet. <laughs> I must go before I leave this you week. You must. You must check I it must out. Go. I haven't I know really checked out the open Hudson Yards. I've walked past it before it opened. Right. Yeah, I've, I've walked through the High yeah. Line for years while they were yeah. building it. But the stories I've heard, people are literally at me on Twitter and going, oh, my God, you need to see this. And it's, and it's very much the New York that I described in the book, you know, kind of redeveloped, gentrified, but corporate gentrified, um, um, smart, data-driven city that's not really for all New Yorkers, it's only for a certain, certain demographic of people that work in those industries and work in financial industries and have money to be able to enjoy. Yeah, there's a, it's a J.G. Ballard type feeling. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's yeah, it exactly. Is, it I mean, Ballard's like, a huge, yeah. like, number one in, influence on me, I have to be honest. And um, No, it's a good, there's a, a few, I've not read a lot of his books, but I've read a, a couple and it feels like a good, like a good continuation of that. That's, yeah. that's a, yeah. A ridiculously massive compliment to me. So thank you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, the book's gotten a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of good reception. So, um, yeah, I think that's – and I think, like you mentioned, people forget uh, forget those topics. And so they have to rediscover them. Uh, yeah, I'm curious what you thought – what you think of New York so far, having not been here in a bit or ha- have, what, what changes you've been noticing. Yeah, it's, it's the same but more kind of. You know, it's yeah. kind of – I saw this coming. We, we, we've all seen it coming. New Yorkers have seen – these changes happening and the gentrification of Brooklyn and, you know, the, the, the pushing down uh, uh, south and north of, of gentrification in, in Brooklyn, especially where I lived. And, and just that the way Manhattan's changed and, you know, the diners are disappearing, the small stores are disappearing, the chains are coming in. Um, and it's not new. It just seems accelerated in certain ways. I'm, I, I had seen it already happen in London um, where the inside of London basically after 2008 after the financial crisis there was a kind of a land grab by property developers and a lot of foreign investment a lot of money that came from Saudi Arabia and Russian oligarchs and all these kind of stereotypes but unfortunately true for building these condo towers the same ones you've seen being built now in you know alongside the river in Brooklyn and yeah. places uh, but being bought not really for people to live in but as investment opportunities you know as 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 as, as Hedge funds, in effect, you know, for people to put their money into as, as property investments, um, and how that's displaced communities and, and, and wrecked local infrastructure in weird ways is is, is upsetting, and it's, it's it's something that all cities, especially all large mega cities, uh, all over the world are, are having to are having to deal with at the moment. Well, I think uh, my kids started talking about it today too. It's probably because I heard me start talking about, it, but he was talking about the super expensive buildings and the sort of feel of that, but. There's helplessness in the big cities and like what you can do. And like now I was curious what your thoughts are with being inundated with this type of data and everyone not knowing what to do. The first thought is to disconnect. The, the smart, interesting move is to build your own um, solution 
which is something that people would you know find difficult or, or really you know maybe impossible or challenging. But um, you know, do you think that? What do you think people's option is? Like, what, I mean, is there is there even a simple answer to that? Like, probably not. Like, no, like, I don't what, know. What do we? Or maybe we're supposed to ask these questions. This is kind of what the book was. The aim of yeah. the book was, was it, it, honestly, it was for me to ask myself these questions. Right? You know, yeah. and the obviously like burning it all down is a reaction that I have a lot, and it's the, what happens in the book. Um, but there's other people in the book who are trying to do more positive things, and and, and like you say, build alternatives and. That's what Stokes Croft is about, even though it doesn't work. It's what another movement in the book, which I won't mention because it is a big spoiler. Um, yeah. Because um, it's the final pages kind of thing. It's, it's apparently seeming to want to do. Um, it's tough. It's and it's it's an issue that it, these are when we're thinking about alternatives. It's I think the starting point for a lot of this stuff is really not focusing on the technology and it's focusing on other other political movements and organizations and activism and community building and, and letting the technology come out of that will be, be part of that. Because I think the problem we've had is these technological platforms have been built by a certain demographic of, of people, mainly mainly white men in, in Silicon Valley have designed these systems and then they've been let loose on the world and they haven't been built for other communities and other demographics and classes and races and whatever, you know, different people to access. And I think the we need to reverse that process. We need to maybe start building systems um, from a community level up that are built for communities, not, not imposed on communities, that are built for cities, not imposed on cities. Um, there's you know, the, the, the really good assessment about, uh, um, about smart cities, Adam Greenfield made in, in the book he wrote about smart cities several years ago, is that, that we're being sold a product and we're being sold a one-size-fits-all product, right? But cities are not, not, are not all one size. Like the, the, the companies that are making smart city technology, they're basically doing it because they've saturated all the other mar markets from networking technology, the Cisco's and the IBM's and people. And mm. they have a lot of products still on the shelf they want to sell. Well, how do you sell them? Well, you convince cities that they need to, to become data networks and that they need large-scale routers and site sensors and you know, like wide-range Wi-Fi networks or those monoliths that, you know, link monoliths, all these kind of things. And once you, they're creating an off-the-shelf product that they want to sell to every city, but every, cities are not the same. Right? They are not mm. the same. Right. And they're trying to force a generic generic solution on a multitude of, of problems. And even that in itself is the idea that cities are problems that need to be solved mm. rather than communities that have needs. I think that's a subtle um, but very important rephrasing of, of, of that problem of that situation yeah. um, but it's how you it's how you sell technology and services to a city yeah, I'm, I'm, you know when I see I mean the governance of a city like you come in and say you've got problems we can fix them rather than coming to a city and saying what are your problems and how do we work with communities to build solutions that, that work for everybody well that immer and again like I look at some immersive theater and art arts things and it made me think about collectives or groups that are trying to do things that are, you know, maybe it's street games or maybe it's, a, and it may sound optimistic, but it, you know, it's a, again, Meow Wolf or other groups that are trying to do things. Some of them are their own enterprises trying to, you know, sell tickets and others are other things. But I, I wonder if some solutions can be found there or whether those will be co-opted, but there's, it's, it's an interesting groundswell in that, 
that reminded me of what you were talking about. Yeah, totally. And it's and like I said, I don't really have the answers. I think yeah. some of these things will work and some of them won't. And some of them will just be consumed into, you know, the, the capitalist way of doing things. And some will be bought up by large companies and others won't. And others will fail and others will, will die. Um, but we need to keep trying, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, and, and not accept the answers that are given to us and kind of try and find our own. Well, the book is a great, uh, like you brought up, it's a it's a great questioning of this current question of what do we do about the internet. So it's it's worth reading right now because it's literally, do you tear it down? Do you build it up? Do you do both? Um, please do read it. And um, thank you for, for coming on and, and talking about all of this. And uh, look forward to keeping in touch about what you're working on next. Um, as yeah, well. I've got, got I've got to try and write another novel this year. That's why what, what I need to do. I need to get back and that. But no, thank well, you very much, man. Yeah, thank please. you so much for having us ha- having me in. It's been great, and it's been good to talk to you. Thank you. That's yeah, great. And um, follow uh, Tim as well. What is your account? My you know, Twitter like? is at Tim Morn. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's the main place I'm active these days. Yeah. Okay. Or you can my website's timmornbooks.com. But yeah, Twitter. If you want want to hear me ranting and swearing about technology, that's the place to go. It's a good idea to, to, to tune in and do that. Um, thank you so much for, for stopping by in New York. And uh, yeah, I look forward to reading what you have next. Excellent. Cheers, Scott. Thank okay, you. Okay. Thank you. Well, that's been CNET Book Club uh, this episode. And um, we'll see you again next time.